Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at www.thepulpiteer.com backslash revelation. Let's go ahead and, and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for a chance to gather together, and I thank you so much, again, for the gift of your word, uh, just for, for scripture and the way it can shape us and affect how we um, not only see the world around us, but how we understand ourselves and uh, can point us towards you. So we just pray, Lord, that you would do those things, that you would open our eyes to see uh, your realities, that you would open our hearts to receive your love, and that you would give us uh, courage and conviction uh, to lead lives of faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the seals, trumpets, and bowls worksheet. We will. Uh, I'll. I'll put a. I'll click up there, and you'll go ahead and do that. But just so you know that um, when we get into the uh, uh, trumpets, then you're going to fill that out for next week. Next week you have. Um, we're going. We're doing chapters eight, nine, and ten. Um, we're going to cover those three chapters, and so you'll have a chance to. Uh, go through those, and because you thought, well, two chapters at a time isn't good enough, let's do three, so we'll do three this time, and, uh, but you'll be able to do and, and fill those out. One of the things I want you to look for is this, as we, I talked a little bit about last time, is numbers are significant in there, and so we have seven seals, what else do we have seven of? Seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven what's that? Seven lampstands, yep, which represent the seven churches. And then there's seven spirits. Yeah, so there's these sevens all over the place. You'll also find sevenfold blessings. Or um, today, I don't know if, if anyone caught it when it was describing humanity, the kings and the um, princes and whatnot. They were described using seven different categories. And so that's one of the things. Well, at, kind of at the heart of the book, you have these sets of seven um, the seven uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls. And I, I want us to notice some patterns that happen within those. And one of the ways that's been um, described by people who have, who have studied the book is that we get these cycles. So I want, what I want to get us away from is I want to get us away from thinking of Revelation as a, as a future, as a timeline in reverse or whatever, but instead thinking of we're seeing visions. And these visions can cycle back, and they can show us different, different things. So um, we'll see today uh, some kind of interesting things about, about the end of all things. And, and then, but then we keep cycling back, so keep that in mind. But anyway, so there's two kinds of, there's two threats that are hanging over. One is the threat that uh, John refers to as, as tribulation or um, uh, uh, suffering. Uh, from or persecution from the people that are of of the earth persecuting people who are being faithful. The other threat is judgment from God. And as you pointed out, one threatens physical life, the other threatens eternal. Who really <laughs> who's really geared up about suffering physically at all, right? So this sort of literature <clears throat> if you are somebody, I just read today, um, oh, somebody linked it on Twitter, uh, a, a story that's just coming out about something that happened in August where it was just another horrible incidence of, of ISIS coming into a place 
I believe it was in Syria, and um, killing 14 Christians there and torturing them horribly. Um, and it just, it, it literally blows my mind that it's hard for me, I don't know about you, it's hard for me to just fathom that this is going on. Um, and it was to the point of the, the leader, his like 14-year-old son, they were torturing him, telling the dad, if you just say that you're loyal to Islam, we'll stop. And I thought, I don't even know how you would make it through that. And they ended up um, killing a lot of them. If you're in a situation where persecution like that is happening, this book reads differently, doesn't it? Because life already sucks, and here's hope. But if you're comfortable, like I don't know about you, but I'm sure tempted to be, all of a sudden, the book challenges you, doesn't it? Because then the question is, if you're not, if your faith doesn't cost you anything, is it really faith? Um, and that's a hard question because, and that's the one that in America we we have more of that question, don't we? But this plays differently in different in different contexts. So we're going to look. Uh, I, I put it in the super small writing just to frustrate you. Um, <laughs> actually, what I was trying to do is I, I put the sheet up there that you have the the seals, trumpets, and bowls. And uh, I, this is just an encouragement to sit even closer to the front. But um, uh, we'll kind of go through this uh, and, and look at that. So you remember if we get from uh, chapter 4 we have, and 5, we have this throne room vision, this awesome worship vision that, that goes out, and then the Lamb on the throne takes the scroll, and then it turns into worship, and this whole worship erupts. And that's where we left off in, in chapter 5. Now we're getting into one of the most famous parts of, of the whole book with the horsemen Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. As you looked at Zechariah 1, um, what connections did you make between Zechariah 1 and Revelation 6? The horses. Is the red one the same? Here, find, find Zechariah in your Bible if you can. And turn to Zechariah 6. And you've already read Zechariah 1. I'm going to read this through, and I want you to think about what happened in Revelation 6 and 7, and then hear this and see what elements are in both. So Zechariah 6, I'm going to start reading with verse 1. And again I looked up and saw four chariots coming from between the two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second chariot black horses, the third chariot, white horses. The fourth chariot, dappled gray horses. Although, does anybody's translation have a different color there? Just a, dappled. Dappled, active, and strong. That's a very, uh, that's a very vibrant color. <laughs> um, it, the, the, uh, from what I can understand, the uh, translation of that particular word is a tricky one. Um, but the first three colors we notice are in there, right? Um, then I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, These are the four winds of heaven going out after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. What does that sound like? Do you remember in, um, in Revelation 7, 
one of the elders turned to John and said, who are these? And then John said, I don't know, you're the one who brought me here. Or whatever he said, right? <laughs> and, 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 he told, and then he told him. The, the other thing that's similar here, so you have an angel communicating with the person receiving the vision, and the angel asking, uh, or the person asking and getting an answer as far as what's going on. The other thing is it said these are the four winds of heaven. Do you remember the first part of chapter 7? The four angels at the four corners. Now four is another symbolic number. Uh, tends to represent the earth or something to do with creation. So where else have we seen four? Four creatures. Yeah, yep, that was the big one. Okay. All right, so in, in Zechariah 6, we have some of these elements that are coming forward. And so that's the paint set that, that John uses to get into this. Um, to the, uh, it, with Zechariah, what's going on is... Um, this is going to be a time of the end of, of exile. So if you know uh, the history of Israel, uh, the, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria, and then uh, after a while the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon. And then uh, once they were conquered, they would come in and they would kill a bunch of people and then take a bunch of peop- other people and spread them all over the empire and then bring other people and move them into your home. Okay? So that was called the exile. So they're all over the place. And so some of the literature we get, uh, like like Daniel or like uh, Esther. Esther is dealing with the, the Persian king. Um, these are groups of Jewish people that are in exile. They're in a different place. Okay? At the end of exile, after a while, uh, the Persian king allowed people to return back to Jerusalem. And so this is kind of in that spot where that's starting to take a turn. And um, as that's starting to take a turn, uh, what we have is these horsemen whose job it is to make sure there's peace on the earth, and then the complaint comes up, let me look at Zechariah 1, where it says, how long will they be allowed to rest in peace, or have peace on this earth, Uh, and I don't have it right in front of me, Um, but here you have this this part where these horsemen have the job of keeping peace, but then keeping peace means that people are oppressing God's people. And so then the horsemen are sent to go out and shake things up so that God's people will be set free. So that's the the role of the horsemen in Zechariah, um, is to take peace from the oppressors uh, who lived at ease. Okay, So in Revelation 6... Um, let's see if it's here. The four horsemen are designed to shatter the illusion that people can find true security in the borders of a nation or empire, in a flourishing economy, or in their own health. And so I want you to think about the situation in Rome. Rome comes in, they conquer everything, they say, as long as you worship us, everything is awesome. We establish something we call the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome which means you can trade and travel and all sorts of stuff like you couldn't before when everybody's fighting each other, and you just have to, you just have to follow our marching orders. And uh, then they'll say, we are the ultimate providers of peace and security, and under that peace and security, um, the economics uh, th- uh, were thriving for some people. And so um, you've got people who are holding God's people under. And you remember, if you were faithful to God, could you suffer economically? Yes. Could you suffer physically? Yes. 
And so if you're suffering from these things and everybody else is like, oh, everything's uh, hunky-dory, as the kids say, then, then you know that there's, there's this oppressive power coming down and it's, it's this question, how long is this going to go on? This isn't fair. There's no way out from under this. And so these four horsemen um, are designed to shatter the illusion that you can find true security in the borders or nations of an empire or in a flourishing economy or in your own health. I don't know if you noticed by reading the description, but the four horsemen mess things up, don't they? And the four horsemen ride through and they mess things up. And if you can't depend on, if you can't find your true security in the borders of a nation, of course Rome was saying you could, right? And here they're saying that you can't. If you can't find your true security in the nation, where are you going to have to find it? Someplace else. Preferably in God. Um, And if you can't find your security in a flourishing economy, luckily this stuff doesn't speak to us in our situation in America at all. Otherwise, it would be challenging. But this is, and this gets back to what Candy brought up, and I, I think if all of us are honest, we can relate to this. Like, who wants to physically suffer? Right now, the fact of the matter is we can find some measure of safety and security and economic thriving right here. And then the question that bothers me, and I hope bothers you, is what does that mean? Where am I compromising? Um, because I'm, I'm sure that I am. And, yeah, so you just, I think it's something to wrestle with. Anyway, the first horse comes out, and uh, the first horse is the trickiest. And so I'm going to give you two uh, different options of, of what some people think the first horse means. Option number one is uh, people thinking it is Christ. The reasons for this is that white is only used for Christ and for the redeemed. Remember, people get white clothes to put on or that sort of thing, or white robes. And if you look at Revelation 19, where it's describing the Messiah, he's described a lot like the horse that comes out first. Um, For the most part, only heavenly beings have crowns, as, as is described here with the first horsemen, except there's locusts who have something like crowns that are on later on. And then the rider conquers, which is primarily used for the Messiah and the redeemed, although there are some spots where um, the beast conquers. So those are the reasons that people would argue that the first rider is Christ. I think the most um, convincing of those would be the parallel to Revelation 19. I tend to fall with option two, however, where I would say the, the writer represents something we'll call conquest. Conquest. The reason uh, this is presented is, as you see the four horsemen in Zechariah 1 and 6, they function together. And so, to me, I think it would be unusual to have one of them be Christ, the other be war, pestilence, and death, right? So it'd be like three on one. And whereas in, in the imagery that he took this from, they function together. Also, um, Christ the Lamb opened the seal and then the rider came out. It would be awkward to have the rider be Christ that opened the seal. It's possible because this, this imagery is flexible, it is. I mean, it's a vision, right? So that could happen. It's not that it would be impossible. It just seems to me that it would, that would be awkward. It's a, it would be an unusual way to, to tell that story. So that presents another um, kind of thing that comes up. The other thing is historically what was uh, the case here. 
For those people who are in Asia Minor, there was a group called the Parthians, um, and they were archers, and their sacred color was, anybody have a guess what their sacred color was? White. And so guess what they tended to ride? White horses. So you have these white-horsed archers, just like the dude with the bow and the first horse, and they were, Rome was never really able to totally get rid of them. So they were always a threat to Rome's borders. And so they were always kind of out there like the boogeyman that would be a threat to the stability that we have. And so Rome has, Rome's able to give you peace, but there are those Parthians who might come and spill the whole thing, which seems to me to be consistent with what the four horsemen are supposed to do. You're not supposed to be secure in Rome. Um, you, you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, the con- so she's sharing that the first horseman came out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So where you could see the, the lamb conquering, the bent on conquest seems to be um, a, would, an unusual way to describe, or it, seems, it doesn't seem as consistent with, yeah. And, and so, yeah, that's why I think the idea of it being conquest out to take the peace away, yeah. The, the vision wouldn't, so the question is, doesn't Christ already have a crown? Would he need to be given a crown again? The way the vision works is it, it still, it could be like a, re, a representation of Christ where he was given the crown again. So it could happen, but yeah, yeah. And I would put that under conquest. Yeah, triumphant militarism. So this idea of going out and conquering. Yeah, yep. And of course, that's what Rome did, right? This is, I mean, you could look at the four, first four horses as, how Rome came into power, but also the threats to their power now. Yeah. The, um, the, the last, uh, one of the commentaries I read had an interesting point. Uh, Gordon Fee wrote that he sees this as a demonic parody of Christ. So it's, uh, and we'll find that this is one of the themes that comes through Revelation is evil cannot create things in and of itself. It has to kind of warp or twist. And so this would be like a parody of so it's white, like Christ is white, but this one's going out to conquest, with, with conquest and to, to kind of mess things up. Um, the red, you, guys are, you guys are into the red horse. So the red horse. <laughs> we'll go right there. The red horse uh, would, uh, is, is war. So the red horse goes out as war. But um, the reason that's connected to Satan or the devil is the, the other place in the book where this Greek word to describe red is used is in chapter 12 to describe the dragon. The dragon is a fiery red. And the dragon there is, seems, seems to really be the devil, um, as, he, as he's called there, I believe, the ancient serpent, the devil. And so uh, the, the red horse, um, the axe in war, is, is most certainly connected to the devil. Um, he's given the charge to take peace from the earth. So you have conquest going out, and then you have war that's taking peace from the earth, um, that was the big thing that Rome was saying that they could offer you, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome that they were giving you, and this horse can take that away. And notice that he's given the sword, he's permitted to take peace. Does this horse have any authority in and of himself? No, it's granted unto him for a time, which with this connection with the devil, I think, tells us something. God and the devil are not equals that are battling. The devil has a time and then it's done. He's in rebellion, going contrary to the will of God. He's allowed to do that.
and then it'll be done. That's one of the very strong messages of, of Revelation. Um, and, and one of the hard things about why is this craziness coming from the throne room of God, um, the alternative to that, is, or the alternate way of looking at that is to say, this craziness is going on, and you need to know that God is still in charge. All right, that's the red horse. Under the black horse. Black horse uh, would be famine. Um, and it's, there's economic consequences, and you can tell this because of the scales. So the scales come out, that's the way you're doing trade and commerce and that sort of stuff. And famine is the result of the, of the conquest and warfare that are going on. There are economic implications to unrest and war. Sometimes uh, people think that, but I would, I would say no. Um, I think this refers to when war happens, um, economically things go crazy. Um, when the genocide occurred in Rwanda, one of the things that killed a ton of people were, was the refugee situation. There just wasn't enough. There wasn't the ability to get the resources to where people needed them. Um, so when, when warfare comes in, economics go crazy. Um, I, don't, I don't see, and that would make sense to the people in first century Asia Minor. I don't think the, the um, European uh, market would. And so I, I think that that would be... Um, Something that wouldn't, I don't think that would connect. And I don't think that that would, if the purpose of, and I, I think that Dr. Coaster is right here, if the purpose of the four horsemen is to unsettle you in your finding stability in this world, then it's important to mention that one of the things that's going to be unstable is your financial situation. And that comes from this conquest and warfare and all of this upheaval. And, and you see this, right? You see, conquest leads to warfare, leads to economic difficulties. And so you get these uh, weird things, the stuff that probably sounds bizarre to you, where uh, somebody shouts out the price for wheat and barley. And since uh, probably most of us are not overly familiar with uh, the going rates for wheat and barley in first century Asia Minor, um, we have no idea what this means, right? Well, what it means is basically they're saying a day's pay, a day's wages, and then the amount of food that they have is enough to feed one person for a day. So a day's wages, so you could eat for, so one person could eat for that day. What if you had a family? And what if you had a had to live someplace, right? And so this is. This is suggesting um, some really bad economic conditions. But then it says, but don't touch the oil and the wine. And there's a couple different options for this. And um, it's kind of hard to tell exactly what's being uh, referred to. Domitian, who was emperor at the time, he, he destroyed, or he wanted to destroy half of the vineyards in Asia Minor because they were having uh, difficulty with wheat prices or something. He just, these guys could be a little bit insane. And so, um, 
he wanted to destroy those. And so this could be a way of, of God's mercy of saying, crazy Domitian wants to destroy half of the stuff. I'm saying don't touch, half, or don't touch the, the oil and the wine. The thing that actually makes more sense to me is um, oil and wine as opposed to wheat and barley. Oil and wine were something, if you had a little bit more means, um, people that more of the upper class would have need of. And so what happens if the stuff the lower class needs has, it's like you can barely buy it, but then what he's, what's he saying about the stuff the upper class needs? Leave it alone. They can still get it, right? Is it ever the case that warfare happens and the upper 1% are still fine? And so that, I think that's kind of, of what it's getting at is, is it gets into some of the um, systemic injustice that occurs. So there, but there's a couple different possibilities with that. Um, pale green, as we kind of as we talked about, is death followed by what? Hades. Um, it's important to distinguish between Hades and what we think of as hell. Hell uh, would be a, a description of an eternal place of of punishment. Hades would be a Greek concept of the abode of the dead, and so it's kind of a holding place for the dead. And I'd say specifically for the, for the um, I, 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 I think it'd be safe to say the, the faithful dead would be in the throne room with God. This would be just the holding place for the rest of the dead. And so death and Hades together. Again, and this is important. So this is imagery, right? This is imagery. No one believes that there will literally be someday a red horse coming from the sky with a giant sword to like hack people up. And so we're supposed to kind of look at what is, this, what is this suggesting to us, which is why I go back to um, this is a threat to the security we are tempted to find in uh, both, uh, I would say, government and economic systems. Okay. Well, death and Hades together, the picture is supposed to give you, these are kind of like, everything leads up to that, right? Conquest leads into war, leads into famine, leads into all of this stuff, you add them all together. Death and Hades logically follow, don't they? And death and Hades then are, in a way, they're kind, of, they're kind of the ultimate enemy that Satan, or the ultimate tool that Satan has at his disposal, right? Because after all, the thing that terrifies us about this whole Syria thing is that there are people that are, that are literally threatening Christians' lives, or with the shooting that happened just last week, there's somebody who came up and threat, shot you in the head if you said you believed in Christ. There's this ultimate threatening of, of life, so that here's the force of death. Now, do you remember back in, in Revelation 1, I think it's verse 18? Who is it that has, what does Jesus have? The keys of death and Hades. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I have the keys of death and Hades. If death and Hades are, are the ultimate weapon of evil, who has the trump card to play? Christ. This is... That's why we read this at funerals. Like I get choked up when I read this verse because I've stood by so many caskets um, and, and done so many services to say, and Jesus said, and I have the keys to death and Hades. 
which we absolutely need to know when we are facing death. And so these four horsemen come and they tell us, you're not safe in the worldly way of things. It's not safe. Um, However, there is someone that you can trust in that will give you ultimate security. And, uh, and already, just with that death in Hades, that already connect. I mean, that in your mind, that should pop back to, oh, what did Jesus say? He had, he had the keys to death and Hades. This ultimately um, can't get us. Yes. Yeah, and the grave is another way to, so a couple things there. The grave is another way to say Hades, because it's like the abode of the dead. Um, the, and I'm glad you brought that up. So the, they were given authority over one quarter of the earth. Now, here's a question. Does it mean death and Hades were given authority over one quarter of the earth? Or, did, or does it mean that all four horsemen were given authority? And, I, and that's a little bit unclear. But one of the things you could say is death and Hades, I, I would argue, logically follow from the first three, right? And so in a sense, it's kind of six one way, half a dozen another, that at the end of the day, they're given authority over one quarter of the earth. This, um, this number... I would argue it's not a specific number that at some point a quarter of the people will die. But I do want you to pay attention to the one quarter of the earth because something's going to happen with the amount of the earth as we get into the trumpets, okay? And, and so it'll be a test in fractions, which will be fun um, because I had a parent at a teacher conference tell me once that we don't use fractions in everyday life, and doggone it, we do. So <laughs> we use it in study of Revelation. <laughs> I used to be a math teacher, if you didn't know that. So, that's, so, yeah, it took me 15 years, but now I finally got him. All right. Um, any other questions about the four horsemen? Um, it, so the question is, does that four, being one-fourth, is that uh, tied into the symbolism of, you know, like four with in regards to creation. I don't believe so, but um, I don't believe so. I, I wouldn't totally rule that out. One, uh, Dr. Mulholland argues that the four is because um, when there's curses, there's on, uh, he'll go four generations, and then in a household, kind of the, it, it would, you could have like great-grandpa, grandpa, dad, son, just to be... Um, I don't know, male-dominated. But you, and then usually when, when great-grandparents die out, the next generation comes. So usually it's mostly just four generations in a house. So he pointed to that. Although I don't know that, I think any of that stuff, to me, I don't see the connection as clearly. What I do see the significance of is when we get to the trumpets, there's going to be a different fraction. And, and to pay attention to that. Yeah. Yes. Do you mean, so uh, are you talking about the so the um, the number system as far as the so a couple things first the genre matters it, it, as we talk about genre so if you're writing a letter you have one set of expectations if you're writing um, fantasy you have a different set of expectations so if, if I'm writing a fantasy story and I talk about somebody doing magic one thing comes to mind if I'm writing a performance instructional manual and I talk about magic then you know that I'm talking about basically tricking people, right? And there's two different things. And so the genre determines how you look at 
the different elements of the story. The second thing was in, in regards to the numbers. So the numbers come from different things, like seven. Where else do we see seven in Scripture? In uh, seven, but early on, what do we see? Where do we see seven in Genesis? Creation, right? And so seven would be the number of days for creation. So it's this symbolism of, of completion or totality. Um, where do we see ten in Scripture? Ten commandments, and so we get. So it's a it's a larger, or it's a number of completion as well, but a little bit different than seven. Where do we see twelve? The tribes, and then the disciples, and so these numbers are coming from someplace. Yes. 144. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yep, we'll get to that. Yep. Right, if you've been cut out because there's been more than. Yeah, yes. Yeah. When I was in like third grade, I asked the Lutheran pastor that, and we had a talk. So that was. <laughs> and as a Methodist, I just went to Bible school someplace else. All right, uh, so this is uh, Dr. Witherington, who's another one of my professors, wrote this uh, in his commentary on Revelation. And I thought it was uh, worth kind of thinking about. Um, He writes, in one of the great ironies, and this is in your booklet too. In one of the great ironies of my life, I was working on this particular segment of Revelation when the disasters of 11 September 2001 happened at the World Trade Towers, the Pentagon and the field in Pennsylvania. It seemed that life was imitating art as I watched pieces of the Trade Towers fall from the sky, all the while reading, and its rider in the sky was permitted to take peace from the earth. The next thing I knew, I was watching price gouging at the gas pump while reading about the rider with the scales in his hand speaking of exorbitant prices. These multivalent symbols can speak to major disasters in any age, but there's also a pointedness to some of the material. As Bozak, one of the commentators that he's quoting, has noted, during the siege of Jerusalem, Titus gave explicit orders not to destroy the oil and wine because he wanted those luxuries to be enjoyed by the rich who can afford them even in times of want. The black horse states that hard facts, the hard facts of the matter, that harsh inequalities in distribution of the necessities of life are exacerbated in situations of dire need. God's judgment on this injustice follows in subsequent chapters. Injustice was, and terror are, our companions in any age, in every age of human history in this veil of tears. So one of the things I want you to think about with the four horsemen are a good way to think about this, is for the people in Asia Minor, this definitely had some, um, some solid things that they would grab onto. I think the white horse would symbolize to them the Parthians who were a threat to the empire. The red horse of, of war was something they had either lived through as Rome conquered their area or that they were under threat of. And then, of course, um, uh, the, you know, the, the black horse and then death, that stuff follows from that. So it would mean some. But those images... Are, are multivalent enough uh, and, and flexible enough to speak to us in our day and age too. Because the fact of the matter is, we live in a, uh, our human history has been marked by conquest, warfare, famine, and death, hasn't it? And as we found out September 11th, you know, you, probably everybody here remembers where you were. And that's impacted our lives, uh, as I shared in. in in worship, um, it impacted our lives. Uh, my kids haven't lived in a time when America hasn't been at war. Um, and, and so our country went, went to war. With that. So all of a sudden, peace was taken. And it's, it's absolutely affected us economically. 
Um, I, you could probably make a cogent argument that we're on an economic precipice now in part because of some of the results of that. Um, and so these images, I think, speak to us time and time again. And so instead of some, I know, popular interpretations will look for these, these big symbols to come, um, but my argument would be they've been with us for human history. They've been with us. And the answer always has to be the same. We do not find our security in earthly systems. Where do we find our security? Christ, in the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. All right, I want to move on from the four horsemen to the fifth seal. Preached on this a couple weeks ago. Uh, Under the altar, we find the souls of those who have been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. When you hear slaughtered, um, who comes to mind? Who was slaughtered? Christ, right? Chapter 5, we see a lamb standing as, it had been, as if it had been slaughtered. So already we get this connection with them. One of the things I would hope for that, doesn't, that isn't the case is, you know, Christ died for us and it would be nice if um, he did all the dying for us and we didn't have to suffer. <laughs> but that's actually not even what Jesus tells the disciples. Um, he doesn't even, it's, it's funny, Jesus doesn't, doesn't even pretend to soft-sell you anything. He says, if you want to be, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they ought to pick up their cross and follow me. Today, in this day and age, it might be, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they ought to strap the lethal injection needle to their arm and follow me. Right? I mean, it's the, it wouldn't be ambiguous what he was talking. I mean, they wouldn't have thought, gosh, I wonder what Jesus meant by that. I wonder if he means I might not get a raise next week. No, he means you're going to die. <laughs> right? And so, uh, anyway, the slaughtered thing. Um, the altar, then, is a focal point. The altar of sacrifice, I, I found just, uh, Josephus wrote that at that time, it was 75 feet square and 22 and a half feet high which is a pretty stinking big altar, right? And then so they would do sacrifice there. And if you remember, uh, and then there's the altar of incense, which was inside, right outside the most holy place. And in Leviticus 4.18, we find out that the priests poured the blood at the base of the altar. Well, where were the, where were the martyrs? Under the altar. And so all of a sudden, their, their faithful death is seen as what? Sacrifice, a sacrifice just like, or a sacrifice that follows in the line of whose sacrifice? Christ. So they literally, in a way you could say, they literally took up their cross and followed after Jesus. And the good news is, if you follow after Jesus, it's not just death, it's what else? It's life, it's resurrection. And so that's what this, this life is at the base of the altar. And one of the things that then I want you to think of is, this heavenly reality is connected to their earthly trials. Now, if you're going through earthly trials, does it matter that this heavenly reality is going on with it? Gives you hope. I think one of the hardest things would be to think that stuff happened, that something would happen with no meaning at all, right? That you just suffer and nothing. 
no, nothing uh, brought out of it, nothing good from it. But here it's not saying that. It's saying in your suffering, it's like this sacrifice on the altar before God. And that there's some heavenly reality that's giving meaning to it. And so as you, as you and I are going through the weeks and, and we may be asked to make sacrifices to see the bigger picture. So that's what Revelation is always pushing us to do, to see the bigger picture, to see the heavenly reality. So they're sheltered and they're told to rest a while. Then they cry out, how long? And uh, in the sermon I went over this, but this, this, it's all over scripture, but I'll give you three places. Psalm 94, 3. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Psalm 13, 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Or Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for your help and you will not listen? I cry to you violence and you'll not save. Um, You know, sometimes people are going through, when they're going through really crappy stuff, they think, well, I know I'm not supposed to be mad at God or I know I'm not supposed to pray this or that to God. And that's, um, that's just not found in the Psalms, for example. Like when your heart is breaking and you're aching, you cry out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Because if we're in a relationship I mean, do you trust that God actually has the answer to that? And if God has the answer, is it okay to raise it up? Because when you're crying how long, you're crying how long precisely because you believe God can do something about it, right? Precisely because you're trying to find your answer in Him. The alternative to to crying how long is to just say, well, I guess God doesn't care. Or I guess God's... Because then this emotional wall comes up. Of there's some things I can't bring to God because... He might get offended or something. But if your heart is breaking, and you're, God can handle all of that. It's, it's trusting. I, I think faith isn't having the answers or knowing exactly how it goes out. It's faith is, is trusting in the one that you cry out how long to. So, um, the pastoral moment there. All right. So what do we do with this? Um, so here, this gets back. It's back to the question of uh, what do we do with this quote? So the martyrs suffered not because they were sinners, but because they were faithful. So it would make sense if things were just if they suffered because they were naughty, but they didn't. They, suffered, they were faithful, so they suffered. And so one rightly asks, does God care? In a world where faithful people suffer, does God care? Does genuine love turn a blind eye while the wicked shed the blood of the innocent? Or is mercy another name for indifference? Because we're, we're told in uh, First, Second Peter that um, the Lord's coming is being delayed. Why? So people can be saved. Because God wants people to be saved. So that would be, I would call that mercy, right? So God is, so the Lord is delayed in coming so that people have a chance to turn to him. Meanwhile, what's happening? People's 14-year-old sons are being tortured in front of them as they're being forced to try and convert to a different religion. Or people are being asked if they're a Christian and if they say yes, they're being shot in the head. That's what's happening, meanwhile. Right? And so the question is, well, God, does God care? You see where that question's coming from? Does that make a little more sense? It's a hard question, right? But this gets to the, this is the question of theodicy. How does, how, does, how does a good God allow evil stuff to happen? 
And I think that it's important for us to, to find the answer um, not in some sort of mathematic equation that makes all of the evil make sense, but to find the answer actually at the end of this book where Jesus comes back and things are sorted out. As I try to say every Easter, like the answer to evil isn't that you'll have it explained to you why it was necessary that your loved one died. The answer that Easter tells us is your loved one will be raised again. And so now we're in the time of how long, O Lord, and wondering where is God and why is it going this way? But it won't be that way forever. All right, the sixth seal, where the world gets turned upside down. What happens in the sixth seal, by the way? Earthquake, what else? The sun and the moon go black, what else? Stars fall, like all this like insanity, right? Right, all this craziness. Now, and, and uh, the, the people ask, how, long, how does how long lead to the sixth seal? Think of the sixth seal as like the answer. And, and the reason I'm going to say that is, okay, the earthquaking, the sun, the moon, the stars, all this apocalyptic language... It's, it's kind of stock apocalyptic language that symbolizes the end of all things and symbolizes that you're in the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Um, so I was trying to think of how to best explain this because like I was talking about genre earlier, genre matters. And so in, in the Old Testament when it's talking about the day of the Lord and judgment and the restoration of Israel coming, then you start to see these things happening. And so the people who were reading this, when they read that the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned to blood, the stars will fall out of their place, um, I'm going to say they're not expecting literally the sun to be darkened, the moon to turn to blood, and then the stars to fall out of their place. After all, how would a star fall out of its place? It's a sun that's like light years away, right? And so it's not literally talking about that. This is, so if you're watching a movie, and it's a romantic comedy, and you see two of the main characters talking, and all of a sudden there's a thunderstorm outside, and it's, and it's starting to really rain, and then the protagonist has to walk home in the rain, and he's drenched. What, a, what is that symbolism all telling you? of what, what sort of thing just happened? It's sad. What might have happened in the relationship in the movie? A breakup, right? So there's stuff as you're watching this thing, these other symbols tell you, What's going on? How about if you're watching a movie and there's a bunch of like older teenagers and they're in a cabin someplace and they're having a party at night and they hear this noise outside and so the cute girl goes out to check it out. What's going to happen? She's, that was a trick question, you sinners. Those are slasher movies. They're rated R. You shouldn't even know about it. My gosh. What a bunch of heathens. It's a trick question. All right, yes, she's going to die, right? And you know that, right? Even before you hear, right, or whatever happens, right? You know, you know. Why do you know that? Well, it's genre. And so with the genre, when certain things happen, you're like, oh, okay. You get clued in, and it, kind of, it helps to tell the story. That same sort of thing is happening here 
with uh, this imagery of the sun darkening, the, the moon turning to blood and all that stuff, it's apocalyptic language that says, this is judgment's coming. This is the big one. Okay? And so here's some examples of where it's found in the Old Testament. So God's judgment of Israel um, in Jeremiah 4, 23 to 28, you'll find there's no light and there's mountains that quake and the heavens turn black. In Joel 2, 1 to 11, there's a day of darkness. The earth quakes. You'll read Joel 2 later on in one of your assigned readings. But the sun and the moon turn dark. The stars don't shine. Um, God's judgment on the enemies of his people. In Isaiah 13, um, it's the day of the Lord comes. The stars don't give the light. The sun turns dark. The moon doesn't give any light. In Isaiah 34, the skies roll up like a scroll. And so you can kind of go through these and you'll find elements, these apocalyptic elements in all of these. And what it's connecting to is when these sorts of things happen, it's this judgment of God's enemy or judgment of Israel, but judgment as well as restoration of, of God's people or of Israel. Okay? And what the image, how the imagery helps to do that is imagine you've got two, two ways of doing life, two kingdoms. You've got the way the world does things, and then you've got the kingdom of God. And if you put your faith in the way the world does things, what happens when that's turned upside down? You're in trouble, right? You're in trouble. You die or, you're, or you lose everything or whatever the case may be. If your treasure is on earth, what's going to happen to it? You're going to rust and destroy. Or at the very least, they're going to put you in a casket, and it doesn't matter if they put your gold coins in there with you. And so Jesus says, store up for yourselves what? Treasures in heaven. And so there's, that, there's always that contrast there. And so um, the way that this shows judgment is this is saying that, that the way of things now is going to be turned on its head. And one of the ways to think about that as far as the sun and the moon and the stars and mountains and islands and all that stuff, these people live, uh, they're, they're a maritime culture. They live by the sea. If you're sailing, how do you navigate? Stars? Moon, sun, islands, mountains. What happens if those are like all shaken or moved or sorted around? Yes, everything everything would be turned on its head. And so this is a this is a colorful, poetic way of saying everything's turned on its head. God's judgment is coming. Everything's turned on its head. But that's not so different from what we've been saying anyway. Remember the last in chapter five, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And so we expect something. According to the values of the world, we expect a mighty guy with a big sword. But what do we see? A lamb that's been slain, which tells us that there's something about our gauge that is off. We don't see things the way they really are if, if we assume that God's ways are the ways things really are. Okay. And so when judgment comes and it's all turned on its head, then reality is going to be flipped on its head. And, and we get that picture then as it talks further in Revelation 6. It says, um, in verse 17, what is coming? What does it say in verse six, chapter 6, verse 17? The great day of the wrath. Okay. Which, so this is the end. This is the final judgment. And so I want you to see how this picture happens again. And you may be saying, wait a second, final judgment. We're in chapter 6. This book goes to 22. But we're not seeing a timeline of future events. We're seeing visions. Okay? 
This is a picture. This is a cycle. And remember, we get the, don't find your security in earthly things. The four horsemen come. They shake things up. The martyrs are under the throne, and they cry out, how long? When are you going to sort things out? When are you going to make it right, O oh God? And then what's the very next seal? Judgment. God sorting things out. And it's saying, here's the, the, the great day of their wrath has come. And one of the, I think, the fascinating things is these citizens of the fallen order, they're described with a sevenfold classification, kings, magnates, uh, magnates uh, generals, rich, powerful, slave, and free. So this is all of, all of humanity, from kings to slave and free people. All the people, uh, say, of the earth, so of the fallen order. And people of every class now hide from the one on the throne and from the Lamb. Where do they hide? Rocks and mountains and stuff. So here's a contrast. They're under rocks and mountains. Where are the saints of God under? The altar. They're protected by the Lord. The others want to be protected from the Lord, so they're calling out on the rocks to fall on them. Now, if you are, let's say you're Joe Schmo in uh, Asia Minor, and you're, you want to follow Christ, and um, you find out that you have to offer incense to Caesar, and you have to worship Artemis, because we'll say you live in Ephesus, and you're doing all this stuff, and you're like, well, I can do both, right? And then you get this message about this sharp dividing line, what are you going to think? I'm in trouble. See, there's, no, there's not really compromise in Revelation. It's a, it's a really stark line. You're either under the rocks asking them to fall on you, or you're under the altar because somebody killed you. So it's asking you to put your faith in the one that gives you uh, life eternal. All right. I'll make sure I hit all of these things. Um, one of the interesting things that I found out, I won't be able to go into too much, but if you look at Isaiah chapter 2, um, Isaiah's prophesying and he says, Enter the caves and the rocks and the holes in the ground from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Isn't that fascinating? That that very language is there. Or Hosea chapter 10 verse 8, he says, They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills fall on us. Um... How many of you, when you read that part of Revelation 6, thought of Isaiah and Hosea? We're good, Aaron. <laughs> Dirty liar. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is, a, and that's a great point to bring up. So, again, that goes back to saying this language is, uh, it's, it's, it's poetry to talk about the end of the time. Because if the mountains and the rocks were literally destroyed, then they couldn't have mountains or rocks to crawl under. Yeah, yeah. And so, again, yeah, that's a, and that's a good point. Well, I think what it's saying is, um, I think what it's saying is this. We, we all are going to have this choice of where are you going to, where are you going to put your stock in? Where, what are you going to invest yourself in? And at some point, this world is going to crumble around us. 
And if you have your faith in the one in heaven, then you're sheltered under the altar. If you have your faith in this world, it's going to crumble around you and you've lost everything. And so I think that those are the, the images that it's saying. And so, yeah, I mean, in a sense, there's nowhere left to hide there, but that's, I think what Revelation's putting forward is that here's, there, there's not any compromise, there's not any halfway. And I think it challenges us to, to ask, what are you clinging to? So then, um, boy, I've spent too much time on that. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 2, 19 to 21. Yep. Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. The final question that the people under the rocks ask is what? At the end of chapter 6. Who will be able to stand, or who will be able to survive, or who will be able to stand? Who is it that can stand? The, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb and the one on the throne has come. We're all in trouble. Who can stand? And when I was doing this first time, uh, Lost was kind of uh, big. And I don't know if you, ever, I, if you ever watched Lost. I know over here we've got, I know Dwight, it was like the show, right? It, so at, at the end of, it's a hard show to watch, or it's actually it's a hard show to stop watching because at the end of each episode, there's this like moment where it's like, and then it's like, crap, now I've got to stay up another hour. And like, you just binge watch it on Netflix or whatever. And it would have this like, question that would be like, oh my gosh, what do I do with that? And I, I, as I vision the end of chapter 6, it's kind of like that. It's like the whole world's falling apart everywhere and they cry out, who can stand? And then the chapter ends. Although there weren't chapters then, but it's like that's kind of the close of thought. And then what do we move to next? Chapter 7 which is actually the answer to the question of who can stand the great day of the wrath. So in chapter 7, it begins with uh, these four angels. And why four? This, yeah, it symbolizes something about the earth. Right? Four is connected to creation, so it's connected to all of creation. Four corners of the earth was just, it was a way to say, um, kind of encompassing the earth. Um, we don't have to become flat, square earth people in order to follow Revelation. So, um, so they, here they have, uh, in Jeremiah 49, 36, there's this other fascinating referent here that's going on. In Jeremiah 49, he, he writes, And I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all these winds, and there will be no more nation to which the exiles of Elam shall not come. And so... In Jeremiah 49, the four winds are winds of judgment from God. The winds of judgment from God. And so these angels are being told to hold back the winds. So what's being put on pause? Judgment. So you've got the, everything's falling apart, judgment's coming, and then there's like, hold on. Pause. And we have to wait. And what are we waiting for? Another angel comes out of the east and says, wait a second, we need to do what? It's in verses 2 and 3, chapter 7 in your Bible. Yeah, the seals. Yeah, we have to seal the people of God. What's another, what's another story uh, in the Old Testament where Passover, right? The Passover, the posts were marked. And then judgment passed over. So it, there's, this, there's this thing about the, the people of God being marked. 
And they're, they're supposed to be, get marked with a seal where? Their foreheads, okay. So this impending judgment is coming. And this judgment's like from chapter 6. And, but what are we doing? We're sorting out the faithful, aren't we? which is kind of like the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, where there's a sorting out of the faithful. This is, again, why I'm saying this is, we're, we're not exactly at the end, but this is like, this set of uh, seals is taking us like right to the edge of the final judgment. Um, and then, so we have the mark on the doors in Exodus. Also, Ezekiel 9, 34, um, says, is talking to an angel, and he says, Go through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over all the abomina- abominations that are committed in it. I say abominations? Was that? T- My gosh. Jeez, oh, Pete. <laughs> all of a sudden, I've turned into Fox News. Huh? <laughs> um, put a mark on. So, all the people who have a problem with Jerusalem, with, with all the, the idolatry that's going on, put a mark on their heads. And then uh, verse 5 is terrifying. It's like they tell the other angels, angels and then go kill everybody that doesn't have the mark. So, again, it's this, this sense of judgment coming. And you're sorting out the faithful from those who are not faithful. And one of the things about your forehead, and there's a bunch of verses with this, but the forehead is symbolic of your inner posture in relationship towards God. And so there's a lot of stuff about what's, how, what your forehead looks like or how it's marked or if you have a hard forehead, a forehead of bronze or your forehead, whatever, uh, on your forehead. So this being on your forehead is, is revealing something about your relationship with God. And then we get into the hearing and seeing. If you remember last time I asked you to pay attention to the contrast between hearing and seeing, right? Because in chapter 5, we heard that there was a lion of the tribe of Judah. And what did we see? Lamb that was slain. This time we hear what? 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, and then what do we see? A vast multitude, okay? So I'm going to suggest to you those two are describing the same group, which means that if it's a vast multitude that no one could count, why is there a number to count it? Well, what is 144? It's 12 squared. So if 12 symbolizes the, the fullness of the people of God, and you square that, what do you suppose this is suggesting? <laughs> this is suggesting all of God's people. Okay? All of God's people. And so, uh, no, we're not, uh, if there's only 144,000 people in heaven, we might as well just go home right now. <laughs> because even if there was spaces left, I'm pretty sure the guy from Syria who like, lived through the torture of his family and stayed faithful to Christ is in line somewhere ahead of me, right? I mean, so we're in, so the 144,000 symbolizes the, the entirety of the people of God. And he makes sure to break it down, right, in, in the, in the, uh, into the tribes. Did anybody notice anything about the tribes? Yes, the tribe of Dan is missing. And Manasseh is there instead. Does anybody know whose son Manasseh is? Joseph's son, yeah. And Joseph had two sons. That, and Ephraim is sometimes in there instead of uh, Joseph in some uh, listings. Um, and there's no scholarly consensus as to why that is. Um, and so it meant something to them that we don't know. Uh, there's, and there's all sorts of suggestions about how Dan was bad or whatever and that sort of thing. But um, I think the point for us to take is you, it's... It's really just going to great lengths to show the completion, and it's 12,000 from each tribe, so it's like it's, it's kind of wrapping its arms around the whole thing. These are, are the people of God. But one of the things that it does by showing the great multitude is 
is that it's showing this isn't just ethnic Jews, is it? There's a great multitude that comes from where? Every nation and tribe and people and... Whoops. And so... um, we also remember that the lamb was slaughtered and redeemed from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And so then we have these people that are there. Now, they have palm branches. And I just read something fascinating today. Um, the palm branch, uh, the one, uh, at least the one thing I read, said it was to Israel. It was kind of like a national symbol to them kind of like uh, a clover would be to, I guess, a Scot or an Irish, I guess. Right? And so, just the Irish, sorry. It said Scot in my book. I don't know. I just discount the whole thing now. But. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, it was symbolic. This is, but it makes sense, right? Because Palm Sunday, they had the palms. Palms were also used for victory. So when these people are waving palms, they're waving palms of, of victory. How do you suppose you'd be victorious if you're someone who follows the lamb that was slaughtered. Okay, you know, he rose. What, is, what does victory look like for us then? Eternal light, you're talking about the good part. <laughs> also being slaughtered. I mean, the, one of the more disturbing parts for us as Christians is that we follow a crucified Savior, a crucified Lord, who tells us, he doesn't say, hey guys, don't worry, I'll do the cross thing. You guys, take it easy. I wish that, that would be in, that would be in the first book of Andy. That would be in there. <laughs> but it's not. That's exactly what they wanted to do. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what Christ did do all for us is involving our relationship with God. And so that's the second, the, 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 the second life, the, the, the eternal life. that Christ did all of that for us. So in that realm, we are taken care of. He did it all for us. But then he said, but look, on this broken realm, they hated me. How do you think they're going to treat you? And so there is that, that, that contrast and uh, that challenge for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So that you may have peace, in this world you'll find trouble. And those are the two parts right there, right? Why do you have peace? You have peace because ultimately you're taken care of. But in this world, yeah, you're absolutely right, you will find trouble. I think that's the challenge. I think that's a very good question. If we, if our, and I would say it this way, because one of the things I want to shy away from is like, you can't, we can't be jerks for Jesus, right? I mean, that's not what we're called to do. Um, however, I, I would say it this way, is your faith costing you anything? Is your faith costing you anything? And that's, um, and that's a challenging thing. No, no, and I understand that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think great. So there's two things there. The first thing is the, the way we would most likely have our faith cost us something. And that's we're being called overseas, which is a possibility. Um, the way we maybe it costs us something would be uh, socially and economically. And, and so there may be times, and this is where the hard question is, is what, is what does your faith mean for your career? And where we live in a day and age, we live in a culture that will literally work you to death and tell you you're awesome for working until you drop dead from exhaustion. Like if you've talked to anybody who's spent time in Europe and then comes back over here, they'll, they'll point that out to us. Um, and so what does it mean to be a follower of Christ that believes, among other things, in something like a Sabbath? And you see it just on a very practical level. What does it mean for, what was it, Chick-fil-A that closes on Sundays? Like, they lose market share. And that's just, and not to make a hero out of anybody, but that's a, that's a he's legitimately giving people time off in a culture that doesn't do that. And so, yeah, that's one of the questions. The other one is, when you face um, hardship that's not that's not because of living out your faith, but because we live in a broken world. The question is, do you, do you turn more to God to get you through that, or do you turn elsewhere? Um, just to kind of press forward, we just have a couple minutes here left. Um, he turns to the angel and asks, or turns to somebody and asks, uh, the, the, the person asks him, who are these? Who are they? And he says, I don't know, you tell me. And he says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation or the great ordeal. Um, the, the word that's translated as tribulation is the same word that's used uh, in Revelation 1.9, where John is writing and says, I share in your persecution um, as I'm out here on Patmos uh, for the testimony I have to Jesus. It's the same Greek word that's used in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, we're talking to Smyrna, who's undergoing persecution because of their faithfulness. So that word tribulation, or um, uh, it's also translated something else as other bi- people's Bibles. What else is it translated as? Oh, that's a good question. 714. The great ordeal. Does anybody have that? There's a, there's a sense of um, the, the tribulation or ordeal is what the world does to the followers of Christ. And then there's also a sense of the testing or judgment, which is what God does to the people who are persecuting his people. The, when it says, those, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal or the great tribulation, the word coming out is a participle, erkomenoi, which indicates a continual process. So the, the word means a continually coming out of. So there's this great, so there's a, a great tribulation or persecution going on and, and people are coming out of it. So what this, because it says great, it says uh, the tribulation and then great in Greek, um, it, which is distinguished from the tribulation that John is experiencing personally or the one that the church is going through. It seems to, to mean the, the entirety of the persecution of the people of God this great tribulation in, in this broken world. And so the ones who are coming out of that, those are the ones that you see in chapter 7. Does what I just said make sense at all to you? Okay. So as you're living faithful lives in this broken world, and it's costing you something, then there's this heavenly reality of the people who are coming out of that are the ones that are, that are able to stand. Because you remember from the end of chapter 6, chapter 6, 
The judgment of God is coming. Who's going to be able to stand? Well, the ones who can stand are the ones who paid the price now to follow Christ. They're coming out of that and before the throne. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I would agree that definitely the emphasis is victory. In fact, one of the things that comes out is the 12,000 is, a, is a, um, reminiscent of a census. And you would do a census to gather a, a military. So this is the army, the army of martyrs, the army of the Lord. And how would the army of the Lord fight? By faithful sacrifice. By following the way of the cross. So um, when we gather as a church, we are the army of the Lord and are to go out into the world and live faithful and sacrificial lives um, that's faithful to Christ and that is a part of actually literally turning the world upside down. That's why... um, So turning the world upside down... uh, Shoot, I'm out of time. Look, turning the world upside down, you, you see things like that when you, see, um, when you see Christian movements at their most powerful. You see things that, that flip values on its head. Um, so there was a, a village, I forget the name of the village now, I watched a documentary on it in France um, during World War II, a Christian village that housed um, Jewish people during the Holocaust. And why would somebody put their life at risk for a stranger who believes something different than they did? Because their values were flipped upside down. Why would... Mother Teresa, you realize she didn't really heal these kids. What did she do? She held them. People that nobody else would hold as they died which made no sense to anybody. They're a lost cause. These kids and these people were dead. They were dying. Why give them any attention when you could put your uh, you know, emphasis someplace that would bear some fruit? But what if the values of the kingdom are very different than the values of the world? And so you get this little nun that by her faithfulness impacted a ton of lives, didn't she? But it wasn't because she was trying to. She was just trying to follow Christ. Christ that said, you know, the sort of thing you ought to do is hold someone when they're dying so they don't have to be alone. Love them. And so as, as we see this, um, one of the things to think about then is this is demonstrating this, this army of martyrs that go out and live lives that are um, vastly different. And, and the closing questions I wanted to kind of get into where um, where are the casual Christians in this picture? And I think that this is a real challenge for, it's a challenge for me at least as a Christian in America. Um, I'm afraid sometimes of where I fit in this because I know that my first choice is going to be for my own comfort um, rather than to, to live out a faithful life. And there's a, a stark picture that's painted for people who want to, to compromise. And the picture isn't painted because God wants to yell at you. It's because God wants to save you. 
like at the end of the day, this letter, the Christians who were compromising in these churches, the letter wasn't given to them to like browbeat them. It was because Christ wanted to save them. He wanted them to stop chasing idols. Go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that, um, I pray that this book would both challenge us and comfort us that it would challenge us in those areas of our lives where, where we're chasing things we ought not to. But it would comfort us ultimately in knowing um, that we can have our security in you. I pray, Lord, that you would send us out now as, as your army, the church, to live uh, faithful and sacrificial lives for you um, so that this world would be turned upside down. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions, I'll be up here. And thank you all for coming.